0: Thanks for joining us for today's message. Here at Temple Baptist, we're a church on a mission. Connecting people to Jesus and to one another. Well, good morning everyone. It is really quite uh, a treat for Marilyn and I to be back with you. I'm looking out and seeing all kinds of friendly faces smiling back, that's generally pretty good. And there's a whole lot of faces i don't know that's really good too so i'm just grateful to have this opportunity thank you donald for the invitation and the opportunity to come and preach god's word is is really a pleasure uh just want to tell you real quickly where the kids are at because they're all you know eight years older so our eldest uh, caitlin is now a lawyer i never knew that would happen but i have a lawyer in the family living in vancouver and uh... then uh... Our middle child, Alec, after four or five years working for the Mennonite Credit Union in their credit fraud department, I thought, you mean to tell me they need a credit fraud department for these buggy driving Mennonites? he said, oh, Dad, I am so busy, it's unbelievable. After four or five years of that, he got tired of living in a cubicle, and now he's working in Toronto. He started a business with his friend doing uh, renovations. And you know how handy I am with tools, so I don't know where he got any of that in his DNA. And then our youngest, Jessica, she is a urban farmer. Kenny, you'll be glad to hear that. Lee, you'll be glad to hear. I have a farmer in my family. She is a tree-hugging farmer and uh, living in Vancouver as an urban farmer. And uh, so they're doing well, and uh, we praise God for that. Let me tell you a little bit about your fellowship. You are part of something much uh, bigger than yourselves. Uh, You are part of an association of fellowship churches, of course, that meet in and around this area. You're also part of a region of churches called Feb Central, which is made up of about 279 churches across Ontario, and those English-speaking churches in Quebec are part of that region as well. The region cares for things like church planning, church health, church leadership. They come alongside of our churches to help them thrive in those areas. You're also part of a national group of churches, of which I give some servant leadership to, some 507 churches from coast to coast to coast, and we care for areas like uh, international ministry, of which Edwin and Helmy are one of our uh, uh, missionaries. Could I use another one here just so we don't have to listen to that? Yes? Okay. Hide and seek. Is that good? Hopefully, that's going to be better. Uh, international ministry we also have a uh, department that cares for humanitarian relief and justice issues called FAIR we also are involved in francophone ministry basically church planning in Quebec with Quebec being one of the most needy spiritual places on the planet 0. 0.7 of 1% self-identifying as, as, as evangelical Christians 7.3 million Canadians are French-Canadians, and they're one of the neediest spiritual groups in all the planet. And uh, Temple, of course, is involved in that ministry with Eglise 21, uh, that's Church 21 in downtown Montreal. You're involved in partnership with that church plant, and I praise God for that. Also chaplaincy ministry, we've seen our chaplaincy ministry just blossom across Canada from 27 chaplains. In the last three and a half years, we've grown to 96 different chaplains in every conceivable place because chaplains are serving in areas that are churches just can't go. They're enclosed communities. You can't just walk in. Pastor Donald and James and Glenn and others can't just walk into a police station and seek to Shepherd or proselytize or do anything. It's a closed community. You go to the airport, the an Airport, and there are four fellowship chaplains at the chapel. Go visit them. They know you. They know the fellowship. You can't just go in there and start to proselytize. You'll be thrown out of the airport. Our chaplains have that capacity to be able to do that. I have a pile of different material that I'd love to have uh, made available to you on all these different ministries. Just come and pick something. Find out more about what your church and churches across Canada are involved in. I've brought a fairly significant number of our latest Thrive magazine. We put this out three, four times a year. This later one is called Alone Christian Amnesia. It's all information related to the changing times we live in in Canada as as people of faith are becoming more and more marginalized and pushed out of the public square and and religious freedom is is in jeopardy and so there's some interesting stuff in that magazine I really would love you to be uh, more more uh, aware of so please pick that up as well I mean on any given Sunday I'm in a different place uh, across our country or around the world Uh, last week I was in Fergus the Sunday before I was I was speaking at a Filipino church in Toronto the week before. I was in Tornado at Grace Baptist Church in Indonesia with my translator Edwin, and in the evening at Faith Baptist in Manado. Uh, these two cities that are live uh, quite close. Next week I'm where am I next week? I'm at uh, Parkdale Baptist in Belleville where I pastored in the 90s. And next week I'm in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia preaching in a church. So I get around. I get around, and the only perk is the air miles. Let me tell you. It helps me to send Marilyn to Vancouver whenever she wants to go see the girls. So it's good. It's great to be here. It really is. really is. We had so many good years. And as Pastor Donald said euphemistically, those were times of transition. Remember those days? They were some really hard days. But we got through them. And then I look out here, and I just feel blessed. See the ministry grow, thrive praise God praise God so let's pray as we delve into his word father we're grateful for this time this opportunity to open your word is an opportunity for you to speak to us and you want to speak to us we get to choose whether we listen so Lord just quicken our hearts right now help us be wise as your children to hear from your word to hear what your spirit has to say to us in some area of our life and we'd be even wiser to apply it to our lives this day, this week, for your glory, but for our great good. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Kindness. Kindness is a powerful tool. Someone has well said that kindness is nothing more than love with its work clothes on. If I can have that up there. Love with its work clothes clothes on. The actual word from the original text, the word kindness, literally means, from the Koine Greek into English, it means fit for use. So in a sense, as believers, we are not ever going to be fit for use until our lives model kindness. The old English, the etymology of the word in the old English word is kin. Kindness comes from kin, kindred. Which, once again, the inference is there that I show kindness to people. When I show kindness, I'm, in essence, treating them like family. I'm treating them like family. We're called of God to show kindness. And if this church were to discover its kindness IQ, one of the best ways they could do it by, is by asking a very honest question of themselves. If Temple Baptist Church were to disappear tomorrow, would anybody in the community notice? That's a sobering question. We do consultations in our churches across the country and trying to help our churches to thrive and be healthy. And one of the things we do is we go around the community and we sit down and have a coffee at a restaurant that may be just, you know, 500 meters from the church. And we say, have you ever heard of Faith Baptist Church? You cannot. So often people say, where's that? Well, it's just 500 meters down there. You can see from here. If temple were to disappear tomorrow, would anyone in the community notice would anyone in the community mourn the loss of Temple Baptist Church which really goes probes to the deeper question and that is is temple on mission in this community are you embodying those core kingdom values that Jesus envisioned for his disciples and for his church I mean, we like to live life and make lists, and many people have made lists of those values that are important to live a good life, a good Christian life. And there are many lists. There's as many lists as there are books writing about the values and the virtues that are good to live by in life. And some of the lists are really long because no one wants to miss them. They're often very different than one another. Uh, Often there are maybe three or four. I mean, our own fellowship list, if we can look at the next slide... Is serve, unite, thrive. Because most people can't remember more than three, maybe four. Serve, unite, thrive. Enron had four, the great energy giant. One of the four was integrity, and we know what happened to Enron. Because employees are people, and people forget. Our values are stated to us in the scriptures. We find in at least three areas, in three portions of God's Word and there are others where we find these three particular values, what I would refer to as kingdom values, that we are to live our lives and to model our churches from. The first is from Micah 6.8, which is a very familiar passage. Micah 6.8, God calls us to justice, to mercy, and to humility. We read, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. We find out also in the Old Testament a passage in Hosea 12 and verse 6, and we see similar values being, being shared. God calls us once again to justice, to mercy, to waiting on the Lord. We read in Hosea 12, 6, but you must return to your God, maintain love and justice, and wait for your God always. And then Jesus calls us in Matthew 23, verse 23, to justice, mercy, faithfulness. When he speaks of the hypocrisy inherent in the religious establishment, the Pharisees, this is what Jesus has to say. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These three, justice, mercy, and what I would refer to as humility, these are three cardinal virtues that make up those core kingdom values that Jesus expects of you and me as followers of Jesus Christ. Ravi Zacharias, the famous apologist, pointed out that these three very similar virtues were a consolidation of how God expected the nation of Israel to to conduct itself. And things haven't changed. They're the same ones that Jesus calls us in Matthew 23. Justice, mercy, faithfulness, a trinity, a triad, What makes them so special? What makes them stand out? Well, the first thing I would say is they're not a list. I think they make up a system, if we can move to the next, a system of those kingdom values that should inculcate who we are in Christ, that we are demonstrating, modeling justice, or what we could refer to as integrity, that we're modeling uh, loving kindness or mercy, or that we're modeling humility. Let's take a look at the three very quickly. Justice, the word from the Old Testament is mishpah. Justice is, in essence, could be understood with the idea of rectitude or virtue, a moral virtue. It describes a person who displays consistent integrity. And in essence, justice is nothing more than the collective result of a group of people or many people choosing to live virtuous lives of integrity. This has been the great uh, joy and dream of the Western Hemisphere, that we have chosen collectively to live together justly. I get to travel the planet, and not every country lives like that, and chaos ensues. There's also mercy. It's the Hebrew word chesed, which uh, in the newer translations is translated as loving-kindness. In the older translations, it's, tra- it's translated as grace or receiving something that I don't deserve, receiving something that I have no credit for. It's God's grace. The word also means a steadfast devotion, a, a loyalty, a covenantal love. It is, in essence, the spirit in which we are to administer the justice. We're to do it in loving kindness. And the third of our triad, our triangle, our trinity, is humility, stated in Micah 6.8. 1 Peter 5.5 5 says, clothe yourself with humility. It's something that should be true of the believer, a humble uh, humbleness should be evident in our lives. The two other passages that I quoted, one speaks of the waiting on the Lord and the other one speaks of faithfulness to the Lord, but in every case the three collectively speak of that subservient view that I have under God. It's a humbleness. Now I find it very interesting that in the center of our triad is the word courage. It's going to take courage to live that life to live a life of humility, justice, and, uh, and, and mercy. The center of the triad is this moral courage that comes from our faith in God. And it's a moral courage because it's not enough just to know that I'm supposed to live like that. I have to, on a daily basis, have the courage to live like that. Despite the innate sinfulness of my life that doesn't want to live like that, Despite the countercultural life that Christianity is in a culture that doesn't want to live like this. Integrity? Humility? No. It takes courage to live like that. It's not for the meek. It's for those who want to live a courageous life. It takes courage to do what is right, that's integrity. It takes courage to admit when you're wrong, that's humility. It takes courage to care, even though ignoring would be easier. Less time consuming, loving kindness. It takes courage each and every day to live that kind of life. It's a system, a system of virtues because any combination of these three create another virtue. So we don't have a list that we have to memorize. We have to live by these three and any combination of them make another virtue. I I give some examples. If you were to bring integrity along with loving kindness on the right side, you come up with authenticity. Authenticity is, or truthfulness, it's it's a sense of loyalty. It's a person who is is trusting, who's honest. The very things are, these are the, the, this is the glue that keeps relationships together. The Beatitudes speak of this person as pure in heart. They're sincere, they're authentic, they're teachable, transparent. If you take the two bottom ones, if you combine both loving kindness with the other one, humility you come up with generosity people are, are like this are generous in spirit and attitude I'm not so much talking about generosity in finances but in your attitude and spirit you're, there's an openness not a closeness there's a respectfulness a courtesy of thoughtfulness you're far more understanding when you combine these two into this virtue when someone's ego is not in the way you, it just makes you more open more receptive more transparent, desires to be more of a peacemaker. It comes actually. This word comes from the Greek word makrothumia, which we don't really have an English word for. It talks about a generosity in thinking. An old book by Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of Successful People, he speaks of abundant thinking. These are people who are open, who live a life that's more win-win than win-lose. And the Beatitudes speak of these people as people who are are. Uh, Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers in Matthew chapter 5. And then last one, combining humility back up with justice or with integrity, the result is meekness. People who are teachable. People who are assured. People who are restrained, obedient. I mean, you use the word meekness in our society, and they see that as a tremendous weakness, but that's not the understanding of Scripture. In fact, the word for meekness is from, in the Greek is the word proteus, which is used as a war horse who has been put under control by his master. He will charge into battle. All the wildness of the horse is still there, but it's restrained. That's what meekness is. It takes great courage to be a meek person. Today, we use the term true grit. It's really closely akin to what they're trying to say in the New Testament when they're talking about... A person of true great is a person who has great capacity, great competence. There's a tenaciousness about them. They're restrained. They hold back. They become our heroes, quite frankly. And the Beatitudes speak of these people as people. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And so a brief peek at this system of virtues. Where can we see it? We can see it all over the New Testament. I want to give you one example in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus went through all the towns teaching, preaching the good news of the kingdom. He saw the crowds. He had compassion. They were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, Jesus goes on to say, to bring more workers to work in the field. So, what do we learn? How are we to model our church? How am I to model my life when the virtues, the core kingdom values are justice, integrity, loving kindness, humility? Jesus gives a wonderful example in this passage. He comes and he says to the city, he looks over the city, and it says, first of all, he saw, he sees the city. He looks. What do you see when you look over Sarnia and the outlying area? It tells a lot about who you are as a person what you actually see. It tells a lot about this church by how you collectively see your city. What is Jesus' example? He looks out on the city, and the scripture says he sees a people who are living without a shepherd. The inference here is that everybody's looking for a shepherd. The problem is the vast majority of Sarnians in this whole area are looking for shepherds that are not going to be healthy or good for them. They think they are. But many of them are looking, them in, looking for that shepherd in the wrong. They're looking for a shepherd. Jesus says, they're living lives as if they live without a shepherd. And then he describes that. In the uh, NLT, of which uh, I, 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 I am preaching from, it speaks of they have problems. The NIV speaks of them being harassed. Harassed. The actual word there, harassed, means to be skinned. It's a very violent word. When Jesus looks at these people, it's as if they've been skinned, skinned alive. Just get that picture. It's a very violent word. And then he goes on to qualify that by saying, not only are they harassed, they're needing help or they're helpless. The actual word there literally means to be thrown down. So when Jesus says, I'm looking at these people out in my city and they are living without a shepherd, they are living Violent lies, in a sense, are being treated violent. They're being skinned and thrown down. And what is his response? Verse, 37, verse 36 says, He saw them and he had pity. The NIV speaks of he had compassion for them. Again, another interesting word. The word is the word, the Greek word is the word, we get the English word spleen. He's talking about an organ. It's as if Jesus saw and it upset his guts what he saw. I mean, it's a very visceral picture. But if we're wise and prudent as his disciples, this is the way he wants us to see our city. We generally want to see it in a very comfortable pose. Jesus sees it in a very violent way in which these people are living without a shepherd, have tremendous, tremendous needs, and what causes him is pity and compassion. And he wants us to demonstrate this very same thing by reaching out to people in the love of Christ with pity and compassion. Jesus was moved by what he saw, and the result is he called on us to a movement of reaching out with justice, mercy, humility, these core values, and penetrate our society with the gospel news, the good news. These core behaviors are what's supposed to direct. They are the means by which we accomplish the end. What is the end? Clearly, Jesus tells us in Matthew 28, verse 18 to verse 20, the end is to go and make disciples. To do the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. And the spirit in which we are to do that Great Commission, making disciples, is using these core values of justice, humility, and loving kindness. Which leads us to another thing. What does the spirit of this kind of work look like? I mean, day to day. Rubber hits the road. What does that actually look like? Years ago, I read a book by Steve Shogun, who's a pastor, in, I think it was a Cincinnati. And he wrote a book called Random Acts of Kindness. He said, it's through random acts of kindness in this post-Christian society that we're going to be able to have a possibility to have a platform to share. He's a pastor who drives around in his car, and in his trunk, he carries a bucket with some cleaning solvents and a scrubber. And when he comes to gas stations to fill up, or generally truck stops, he fills up his car, and then he goes and tells the owner, uh, listen, uh, after he pays for his gas, I'm, I'm willing to go in and uh, clean a couple of your toilets. Can you imagine that? Someone even doing that. Coming up on the front door and say, uh, can I come in and clean your, um, your bathroom, Donald? Are you, are you okay with that? This is what this pastor does. And I tell you, it gets a few people going, what? He came into one truck stop after paying for the gas. He said, I'd be willing to uh, clean a couple of your toilets. And this is a truck stop. (laughs) Yeah, you know what I mean. Anyway, he said, I'm willing to clean a couple of your toilets. And the man said, "Um, well, uh, no, you can't just do two toilets. You have to do all of them. And the pastor said, well, I'm a little bit crunched on time. I'd be willing to do three or four. He said, no, you have to do all of them or don't do any of them. And he said, okay. So he went in there and he cleaned all 12 toilets. You can imagine. He walked out and he went to talk to this man. And this man was a man who was originally from India. And his his faith was, uh, he was a Hindu. And he said, you know, I have Christians come into my, my store here at my truck stop all the time, and they, they hide little Bible tracks behind the cigarettes or in my tray for the lottery tickets, or they, when I'm not looking, they, they tune the radio station to a Christian station, basically saying, you're just a bunch of pests. You're a nuisance. I wanted to find out if you were one of those real Christians. Thank you. You showed me kindness today. I appreciate that. That's what it's going to take, folks, to get a hearing in this post-Christian culture where faith, people of faith are being more and more marginalized, where we're being cast out from the public square over and over and over again. So let's look at passage of scripture very briefly to take a look at an example of what this might look like. It's found in a very familiar story that we've come to know as the Good Samaritan. But Good Samaritans in Luke chapter 10, I encourage you to go there. To Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25, we get an introduction to the actual story that I think is important. In many of our Bibles, the reference in Luke 10 verse 25 is the most important question. And in Luke 10 verse 25, it starts that an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. So he's a, he's a man who's an expert in Jewish religious law. Not Roman civil law. Remember, this is the time Rome is now the overlords over Judea. They are the boss. This man, has civil, uh, this man has no civil authority, but he has religious authority. He's really more of a theologian than what we would refer to as a lawyer. But he would be viewed as a lawyer back then. And he's basically got mixed motives. He comes to Jesus to really try to trip up this young rabbi, to ask a question, a very difficult question that many seasoned rabbis wouldn't be able to answer very well. And the question is basically this in verse 25, teacher, what must I do, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now notice what the lawyer is actually saying, he says, what must I do? The inference in his thinking is, one receives eternal life by what I do. I'm going to gain eternal life, salvation, the old-fashioned way. I'm going to work for it myself. It's what I do, not what someone else has already done. So that's the starting point. He thinks there's that list of things that he should do to inherit eternal life. Jesus turns and asks the question back to him, and I think that's brilliant. The questioner becomes the question. And in this post-Christian uh, environment, I think we have to learn to ask more questions than give answers. When people ask questions, it's wise to ask the question back. Help them to discover what they're trying to find. And help them to discover how fallacious and illogical some of the crazy thinking is that they say and they report to belief. Don't be so quick to give answers because they'll just cast that out ask questions. Follow Jesus' example. He asks him a question. In verse 27, the expert answers Jesus' question by quoting Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 9, 9.19.18. Basically, the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your might, uh, heart, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus' response to him is, you have answered correctly. Now go and do that and live. What this guy realizes is that people are, standing, people are starting to look at him I mean, he was there to try to get Jesus in trouble. He was trying to dupe Jesus. He had mixed motives. He was trying to get Jesus into a trap, and now he's noticing the crowd is starting to look at him. So he's got to quickly come back with a question. And so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor then? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus knows he's evading the response that he really wants. It's a diversionary tactic. Because also inferred in his very question, who is my neighbor, he's suggesting that there are people who are my neighbor and there are people who are not my neighbors. And his thinking, he would think, surely Jesus knows that our neighbors are just Israelites. He had actually whittle it down, just the religious establishment, just people who are the Pharisaic party. Those are my neighbors. And so Jesus sets up this story he's about to tell by basically saying the question we need to ask ourselves and answer is... Who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers it, as he often does, with a story. A beautiful story that we've come to know as the Good Samaritan. The reality is we are looking at a city that is drowning in need. There are people who are suffering. And they may be living on the lake. The beautiful people. So much suffering in those homes. Hurt. Brokenness. And Jesus' answer to this story is that kindness will win over. Mercy, justice, humility, these are the core values that will make kindness happen. Now, people are wondering, who's he gonna, who's he gonna, uh, sh- what's he going to share in this story? And there's passages in Luke chapter 10, verses 30 to 37. I want to quick- quickly read it. You're familiar with the story, but we're going to just very briefly go through it. In verse 30 of Luke 10, Jesus replied with an illustration. A Jewish man was traveling on a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes and money, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a Jewish priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Verse 33, then a despised Samaritan, Came along, and when he saw the man, he felt deep pity. Not familiar of Matthew nine verse thirty-six. Jesus saw, felt deep pity, kneeling beside him, and the Samaritan soothed his wounds with medicine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two pieces of silver and told him to take care of the man. If his bill runs higher than that, he said, "I'll pay the difference the next time I'm here." Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits, Jesus asked. The man replied, the expert in the law, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now do and do the same. You see, mugging was uh, prevalent in Jesus' day. I mean, the Savior was walking the streets of Jerusalem. It didn't mean crime was not rampant. It was rampant. And between in this story are between Jericho and and Jerusalem. It's only about seventeen miles. I've uh, Marilyn. I've actually in a bus driven it a couple times. The interesting thing between Jerusalem and Jericho is that there's this winding road, the 17 miles. Jerusalem is 3,000 feet above sea level, and Jericho is 1,000 feet below sea level. So there's a descent of about 4,000 feet in just 17 miles. It's actually a very treacherous road. Today, it's a nice highway, but it's still winding. In Jesus' day, it would have been a treacherous. It was known as the way of blood in his day because it was known where highway robbers hung out all the time, waiting for people. For their prey and so this Jewish man comes along and he is mugged everything is stolen verse 30 says all his clothes are taken off him and he's beaten half to death and left on the side of the road and the first thing we read in verse 31 is a priest comes along so the priest has left Jerusalem on every given year every priest because there were so many priests they would be given one week in a rotation they'd given one week of duty at the temple he had just finished his one week. He does that once a year. It's quite a privilege. And now he's walking home to Jericho down this 4,000 square, this 4,000 foot descent. He's walking this treacherous road. He's, he's been away from his family for a week. He's, he's looking forward to seeing his family in Jericho. And he comes across this half beaten dead man on the side of the road. And now he has a decision. Do I stop? Do I, I've been away from my family for a week. It's hot. And if I go over there and I find out the man is dead and I touch him, I now become, as a priest, ceremonially unclean, and I have to now walk uphill 17 miles back to Jerusalem. I'll probably have to spend money to get the ceremonial ritual rites all done to make me clean again. I'm going to probably have to get a and I'm going to have to spend some money on that. And uh, you know, this is really inconvenient. And I'm missing my family, so I'll just let someone else take care of it, and he walks on. Hmm. It's easy to get critical, but I think we've done that. Then we learn the next individual is a Levite, a temple assistant. Now, where the, clergy, uh, where the clergy member is the priest, the Levite is a church leader. He'd be equivalent to what we would refer to as a deacon. They were very important individuals in the life of the church. He comes along, and he looks down at this half-dead man, and he decides to move on. I mean, it's inconvenient it can be a nuisance to help the need to help the suffering and it doesn't necessarily make these men bad men they're just busy they're busy they're busy people they're really crazy busy so not me not now not here now, if you're feeling a little bit of conviction it's probably because you got a good heart because I will imagine each of us could be on in our more honest moments recognize that we have actually lived this life not bad people, busy people. And so the people are caught up in Jesus' story. They're wondering, where is he going to go next? I mean, everybody loves a story when the preacher is the bad guy who's going to go to jail for the nonsense he did. Everybody kind of likes that, gets on the news. So who's the next guy who's going to go? He's going to be an ordinary Jew. Just the ordinary everyman Jew is going to come along, and he's going to be the hero of the story. And Jesus pulls this twist on them on the audience, because he knows what they're thinking. And then comes, verse 33, a despised Samaritan. A despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the men, he felt uh, deep pity. Now, we through the centuries have come to know the story as the, good, the story of the good Samaritan. But I've got to tell you, in Jesus' day, there was nothing good about Samarians, Samaritans. According to Jews, there was an ethnic bias, even a racism going on here. I mean, in the minds of many Jews, not all, but many Jews, the only good Samaritan was a dead Samaritan. These were people who defiled the temple. These were people who distorted the, the Torah. They had taken the Torah and twisted and it and in, emitted it into their own holy scriptures. They, they were men who were, and women who were despised by the Jews in the land just north of Judea. There was nothing good about them. But Jesus is not impressed in this. he's saying, by our religiosity, showing up the church and looking fine. But our apathy and complacency towards those people in need is wanting. We cannot authentically say we love God and remain apathetic. We cannot say we love our neighbor if we're, we remain unwilling to let others impose on our time, interrupt our life, and cost us something. He set apart time, his money, and many other things to show kindness. And we learned three quick things, and I'm going to go through these quickly. He's an example, first of all, of a compassion that feels. A compassion that feels. He witnessed the same scene as the other two had witnessed, but verse 33 says he felt deep pity. He swept aside even his own personal biases towards this Jew. Swept aside all of it. It says he saw, he felt pity. He moved from being sensitive to people's needs to becoming sympathetic to people's needs. His eyes clicked in, you see it in the verse there, his heart followed. And all three have to happen if we're going to be all that we are as people who love justice, mercy, and humility. The second thing in verse 34, he's an example of care that acts. We read in verse 34, Kneeling beside him, he soothed his wounds and medicine and bandaged them. So the first thing we read is that he knelt. He got down at that guy's level, met him at his point of need, and met with him quietly and then secondly we see that he helps them and that all the man's clothes have been been removed and stolen so he rips his own clothes likely Uh, the NIV says he uses wine to clean his wounds and uses oil to soothe his wounds and uses his own ripped up clothing to bandage his wounds make sure that this man would be cared for and he places him on his donkey and he takes good care of him and he takes him to a uh, an inn now imagine the scene a hated despised Samaritan with a beaten up half-dead Jew over top of a donkey coming into a Jewish town what do you think the townspeople would like to do with that Samaritan what's the first thing that comes to their mind this would be equivalent to a black man in the 1950s picking up a young, beautiful white woman who has been sexually assaulted and bringing her to a hospital in a southern town in Arkansas or Alabama. That's what this man's doing. He's willing to give up his money, he's willing to give up his time, he's even willing to risk his own safety to meet the need of the suffering around him. And the last thing he says to us in verse 35, he's an example of commitment that endures. Because kindness rarely works on our schedule. It always works on someone else's schedule. It's going to be an interruption in my day if I'm going to live this kind of lifestyle. And I have to be willing to do it. In verse 35, we read that the Samaritan gives him two pieces of silver and says there's more funds coming when I come back if it takes more to take good care of them. He's going to commit to this man. His commitment is to endure until the man is fully healthy. He never calculates whether this needy person is worthy of his care. He perseveres with him to the very end. And Jesus ends his story in verse 36 saying this. Which of these three... Priest, Levite, Samaritan. Which of these three do you say was a neighbor? And so the ultimate question Jesus has been working towards, he starts with that expert in the law, and moves to the story, is he's trying to answer the question, who is your neighbor? And the answer is, your neighbor is anyone who is in need. It is anyone who you see who is in need, and you have the capacity to meet that need. That's your neighbor. And with that definition, that can be anyone. I want to move to the next slide here. The Boys' Storm. I just visited the Boys' Storm just a few weeks ago. And I got to tell you, I was there eight years previously. You sent me there eight years ago. And to see it eight years later, you know, it, it could cause you to cry what these young men are having to live right now. And no one's happy about it at the school, but they don't have the resources. And so I went to the leaders of this denomination. I went to some of the churches and I said, I'm going to come to Canada, and I'm going to ask people who I know to give to this project. But I need to know, I need to be able to tell them that you're going to give to this project as well. And they are. Churches in Indonesia are committing to this project. The needs are s- exceptional. I mean, the, the, to see it is just feels like a crime that we have people having to live like this. But these young men are coming from homes. Many of them are being rejected from their homes as Muslims who have come to Christ. And now they're coming to get an education to become the next pastors, church planters, missionaries in this massive country. The largest Muslim population of any country in the world. And there's so much nominalism amongst the Muslims that they are coming to Christ. When I talk to Edwin, he sees it all the time. These young men are going to become those leaders to see a nation turn to Jesus. So we're going to be asking you to give. And I know within this church family, I know this church family to be a generous family. That was my experience. I don't think it's changed. I'm going to ask you to dig down deep. The need is significant. We'd love to see this boy's dorm built. So what does this look like? We Can turn to the last slide here. Next slide. Jesus said in John 3, verse 7, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Many years ago, my wife and I took our young children to Florida for a family vacation. And we did what many of us did. We went to the, the outlet mall, and we were buying stuff. This is when the kids were very young. I mean, Jessica was in a stroller. And we left this store, this family store for clothing, bought some stuff for the kids and... Caitlin and Alec were in time. Marilyn was pushing a stroller with Jessica, and this, this, this guy who was obviously a homeless who had obviously just been beaten up recently. There was, you know, he was dirty, he was filthy. There was some bruising. He, he had a big dirty blanket he was carrying, and he had no shoes, bare feet. They were filthy as feet. He comes walking up to me and my family. I'm a little bit concerned. And he says, you got any change to spare? And I just said, no, no. And he just quietly left not my finest hour, but I was frightened what it could mean for my family. And I kind of kept watching him and watching him asking other people, and then I said to Marilyn, I I've got to go talk to this guy. And I went over to him and I gave him a $5 bill. I said, here you go. Here's five, here's five bucks. Have a great day. Thanks very much. He was very thankful. And I went back to my family and we got into the van. And it was a hot, hot day. It's Florida. And Marilyn said, uh, we need to get some drinks for the kids. And there was a McDonald's just across the parking. Let's go over to McDonald's and we'll get some drinks. I said, sure. So we drive over there. And I leave Marilyn and the kids in the van. I leave the van to go into McDonald's to buy some drinks. And as I go to the McDonald's door, the entrance door, there's that guy. He's now hunched over against the wall. And he's eating a Big Mac like his life depended on it with my five bucks. And I went, oh, man. How you doing? Get in. Want to get away from him. And then the Spirit of God hounded me from heaven, like you wouldn't believe. Steve, your, your job's not finished. You know it. Why are you disobeying? And you just, I'm getting these drinks and I'm going, oh, I just want to move on. It's been a hot, long day. We just want to go home. And I get out and I walk over to the van. I give Marilyn the, the drinks and I say, honey, I got to go talk to this guy. And I went over to him while he was eating his hamburger, and I crouched down. I knelt down to get close to him, and I said, what's your story? He was homeless. I mean, he was a guy, young, 30s, and he looked, man, he looked like he was in his 80s. Rough life. The night before, he had been in the, back in the uh, fields behind this outlet, and a group of guys came and beat beat him up and stole all his belongings. All he had stole even his shoes. All he had was his blanket, which he was hanging on to. And I said, you know what? Uh, I need to do something for you. He said, what? He said, i got to go buy a pair of shoes to come with me. So we walked across the parking lot, back to that store, walked in there, and i got to tell you, all these nice, you know, middle-class American and Canadians buying cheap goods are looking at us like like I'm whacked. This guy looks pretty harsh, pretty beat up. He's carrying a big blanket, and I walk in and I said, look at your feet are fil- your, your feet are filthy. Let's buy you some tube socks. We got some socks." I said, "You want a pair of shoes, some running shoes? What do you want?" And he looked over and he said, "I want those Nikes." And I went, "Oh man!" <laughs> I thought he'd get the cheap kids because you know the nice man was buying him a pair of shoes. He goes for the expensive Nikes, and I, you know, right away I'm going. Oh, what I do? I buy him the Nikes. We walk up to the nice lady, pay it. She's scared to death. I can remember her face. And we walk out of the store. His name is Bill. And I just started talking to Bill, finding out more of his story. And he was just dejected. His head was just sort of down. And I don't know why I said it, but I said, Bill, do you need a hug? And he just sort of like, ah we just, Mike just embraced, with a real hug. I was getting filthy, (laughs) but a real honest-to-goodness hug, and I whispered it in his ear, I I kid you not, I whispered in his ear, Bill, God is gonna use his children to take care of you because you matter to him. And when I let go, he's just crying. And I said, here's a quarter. This is the 90s, you still have phones. Here's a quarter, phone the Salvation Army, they're gonna come take care of you today. Now I know many of you could tell the same stories. I'm not trying to post because I gotta tell you, I have passed bills all the time, because I'm so busy. I'm no model of this. Many of you who are. But Jesus is calling us as his children to display justice, mercy, to show it with humility. Martin Luther said this, the last slide. Faith alone justifies, yet faith is never alone. It is never without love. If love is lacking, neither is there faith, but mere hypocrisy. Jesus is basically saying to us, you don't fool me with your religiosity when you show apathy to those who are in need. Quite frankly, He doesn't give us an out. He says the world has every right to point their finger and cry hypocrisy if there's no love. Quite frankly, he's saying there's no way you can get around it because they look at your faith, but they look at your faith by your love. Love in action is the greatest witness tool we've got in 21st century post-Christian Canada. Love in action. Or as someone well said, kindness is nothing more than love with its work clothes on. Amen? So let's pray to And Father, we're grateful for this story, what it's meant to us as believers through the centuries. And my prayer again, Father, is that your spirit has had ability to speak to the hearts of your, your boys and your girls here, your children, Father, there's something unique for each of us to learn from this passage. I pray Father will be wise to fulfill it, to apply it to our lives this day, this week for your glory and our great good. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. God bless you everyone.